you know, Jerry, this thing that you're asking us to do, which is to be present in our lives, to be authentic in our leadership, to allow the brokenness of who we are to be a source of our leadership, a source of our intention, not something that's in opposition. This thing that you're asking us to do goes against the very playbook that we all carry around in our minds. So I wonder if we could sort of go at that question, which is, so what's the point of being compassionate? So I think one of the things that we don't realize about compassion is that it is one side of the coin that we um, know the other side is wisdom. And what's the point of being a wise leader? Everything. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, uh, we're not talking about empathy here when we're speaking about compassion. We're not talking about uh, some kind of uh, mental quality that's fuzzy. Compassion has its ferocious aspects. Compassion has its kind aspects, but mostly compassion is wise. That we are able to stand in a quality of attention that is characterized by fearlessness, where we are grounded in a powerful ethical base, where we have moral sensitivity and we are coming out of a place of, you know, of strong moral character and where discernment is present. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. Welcome again to the Reboot Podcast. I am Dan Putt. I remember standing there in the doorway, checking my phone, and my heart rate skyrocketing. I'd just done a quick scan of my inbox on a cold Saturday morning in January, and immediately I thought of all the things that I should be doing or that I dropped the ball on, and they all rushed into my head. And I felt the impulse to both do them and to run. And I paced a bit, and I thought about ripping out my laptop and getting to work. And then I walked in the other room and I reset. There on the floor where she had been playing with her toys just a minute ago was my then six-month-old daughter, Emmeline, who was now two. But she was not playing with her toys. Instead, she was sitting there with her arms up, attempting to grab the sun. In the early winter afternoon, we would have this wonderful direct stream of sunlight that would roll through our living room. And as I stood there in the doorway with my heart racing, I felt like I was catching this magical moment. And I was. This was the first time my daughter was really noticing the sun. She saw the beams and was grabbing for them, trying to to hold on to them, and was totally confused and perplexed as to, how is this thing there and I can't touch it? And I felt my heart rate go down and my heart fill up. It was a simple thing and a simple moment And yet it felt huge. And I wondered, how many moments am I not really there for? How many opportunities for beauty or wisdom, love or connectedness am I missing with my scattered attention? For the six-month-old, there was nowhere else to be except here. And here is filled with a long list of things to be noticed, discovered, explored, and appreciated. And because of her example in that moment, I too noticed the beams of the sun and I appreciated the warmth and I felt better. How often are you sitting in a room but not really sitting in a room? 
or in a conversation, but not really in the conversation. Or listening to someone, but just waiting for the next problem to solve or the next question to answer. And what are we really missing in that? It turns out that we're missing a lot. It's not only our opportunity to be present and to be more deeply connected with others, but we're missing out on access to an even deeper wisdom that's available to all of us. My daughter didn't have to think about how to be there. She was just there. And for some of us, that's not so easy to do. But what's important is we give ourselves a chance to even notice the rays of sun. In this episode, Jerry is joined by Roshi Joan Halifax, a Buddhist Zen teacher and anthropologist. Jerry first met Roshi Joan a few years ago when she was presenting her grace model, a process for cultivating compassion in leaders and one that's applicable to everyone. In this conversation, Jerry and Roshi Joan make a powerful and important connection between attention, compassion, and wisdom. And these are not just cornerstones to effective leadership, but also to effective living. Hey there, folks, it's Jerry. I just recently had the opportunity to sit down with uh, Jay Levy. Jay is a terrific investor that I've known for a couple of years from New York. And I asked him about his experience both at our investor bootcamp as well as his experience in participating in what we call our reboot circles following the camp. Take a listen to what he has to say. I've looked at the circles as as an opportunity to have time with, with a peer group of equals who are going through ups and downs and similar challenges and get it. Um, and I can talk to in a in an unbiased, they have no skin in the game way. And I think we served each other for that. And, and then the care was there because there will be follow-up emails after, how can I help, you know? And we really did discuss a lot of pertinent, important issues. And sometimes just having someone to speak through it is great. Reboot is currently offering eight leadership groups for vital leadership roles. New for 2017, we are launching our CEOs in Transition Circle. If you're a CEO who has recently stepped down, or if you're currently a CEO sensing a change on the horizon, this circle may be for you. You can learn more and see a complete list of Reboot Circles at reboot.io forward slash circles. To pay attention. This is our endless and proper work. Mary Oliver. Hi, Roshi. It's so wonderful to see you again. And thank you for coming on the show. And thank you for joining us. And before we get started, could you just take a moment and introduce yourself? Thank you, Jerry. I'm really happy to be here. So my name is Joan Halifax, and I'm the abbot of Upaya Zen Center. And a person who's done a lot in the field of engaged Buddhism. Also, in my early years, I was an anthropologist. So I had an opportunity to look at culture and society from a very unusual perspective. And uh, my life really turned when I encountered Buddhism. um, Because I realized that there was a possibility of bringing together a contemplative life with a life that's socially engaged and socially responsible. I was inspired to talk with you after we both spoke at the Mindful Leadership Summit 
about a year ago, um, maybe just over a year ago, and I'd heard you give a talk on the application of a model you call GRACE, which is an acronym, which we'll get to in a second, and the notion of compassion in leadership. So maybe what would be helpful is to talk a little bit about this GRACE model, um, and then we could sort of shift into um, just a sort of broader leadership around it. Well, you know, I, I wanted to um, look at why uh, there was such a deficit in compassion in medicine. And I would say the same is true uh, of uh, uh, in terms of leadership as well. And, um, you know, there there's so many things going for compassion. Um, but I realize that people don't really understand what compassion is. In the months of sitting in, you know, the Jefferson Library or the Jefferson Building at the Library of Congress in, in my office there, I began to unpack the valences of compassion and realized, uh, you know, one afternoon that compassion is actually composed of non-compassion elements. And that it was difficult to actually train people in compassion as a kind of lump, you know, to be compassionate. That um, if we were going to be effective in training people in compassion, whether it was a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a parent, or a politician, um, that we really had to work on the inner structure of compassion. So the first thing I did was to develop a heuristic map of compassion, which laid out the these non-compassionate elements, which are all elements that are familiar to all of us and in which we can train. And I thought, you know, out of this map, we actually need to have an application. We need a kind of instrument, if you will, something that um, can be in the back pocket of a politician or a physician, a nurse or a parent, that will uh, be the means the skillful means for people to actualize this quality. And it was uh, the, the grace process that you heard about uh, in D.C., um, which uh, came out of my deliberations, realizing you need a, to have an acronym or a mnemonic. You have to have something that, you know, is non-religious, but actually secretly it has very deep, roots in uh, Buddhist psychology and philosophy, and something that is um, very accessible to anyone, whether uh, you're a kid um, or a, an adult, whether you're a highly educated person or a person who is like uh, um, our Nepalese, that some of the people that we work with have no education, but they immediately got grace. So that process is called grace, and uh, it you know there are very specific processes that we go through in order to cultivate compassion in the direct encounter with someone who's suffering. So if I understand this right, so the trajectory went from an inquiry into compassion, an understanding of compassion as a as really a complex process that consists of multiple parts and that um, 
for a model of cultivation and training, you develop this notion of grace, which again is an acronym, a lovely one, right? Because it means grace. And I'm going to jump in and, and, and describe the acronym. G is for gathering attention. R is for recalling intention. A is attunement to self and other. C is considering in order to open to insight and to discern, to use the power to discern. And finally, E, ethically engaging and enacting and then ending the interaction. Oh, yay. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> well... I'll be I'll be I'll be honest in that I'm reading from my notes. <laughs> okay, well. But I know that this was in effect an exploration of compassion and really in response to say the burnout and the challenges to resiliency. There's that word again that you were experiencing with clinical practitioners but also I imagine first responders, I imagine pe anybody who's encountering the world and its suffering, if you will. So what do we mean by gathering attention? So the very foundation of everything that we experience when we're in our own subjectivity or in our intersubjectivity that is relating to others is attention. And the cultivation of attentional balance that is being able to actually perceive in a way that allows us to perceive clearly, to uh, have attention that's stable, to have a quality of attention where there's high resolution or vividness, and to actually be able to sustain our attention for more than a moment. And, of course, our attention has been so co-opted by our digital devices, um, by uh, the corporate world in a certain way, you know, through marketing, advertising, by, you know, the sort of industries of greed, that um, having our attention ungrounded um, has a number of influences on us. You know, one is that we are more easily influenced. Um, that we don't really, you know, stand in a quality, uh, a quality that is uh, characterized um, by stability so that we can, you know, uh, the media can influence how we think and also how we feel. So attentional balance is really uh, critical, Jerry, in terms of being the foundation where we're able, you know, as leaders or clinicians or parents or lawyers um, to be fully present and to have the ability to discern clearly uh, what is happening in the present moment. And that uh, capacity, if we aren't able to see clearly what's happening in the present moment and we're not grounded, but we're upregulated, and our attention becomes divided or dispersed or distracted, uh, there's no possibility that we can actualize compassion or wisdom for that matter. So attention is really a, a critical feature in um, the experience of compassion. So I asked myself, Jerry, you know, can someone be compassionate 
um, and not be attentionally balanced. Clearly, they cannot. You know, when I first heard you speak of this, and, and then subsequently when I read more about your writings about it, it, it also strikes me that, um, in a sense, the call to not pay attention is actually not merely a function of external forces working on us, but also a function of internal forces saying, I, I, I don't want to look. I want to look away. Right. Because if I look, then I'm going to experience pain. And, you know, one of the, one of the first things that, that we work with when I do these uh, multi-day immersive four-day, we call them boot camps, um, but um, one of the first things I ask people to do is, is to actually answer a simple question. How are you? And just bringing their attention to how they actually are feeling in the moment is oftentimes enough to open up a heart because it's so closed and so tight. Does this resonate with you? Uh, totally. I think this is um, so important, uh, Jerry. Um, you know, one of the ways of describing this is presence mm. or coming alongside or bearing uh, witness. Um, yeah, there you are. This is um, critical in terms of how we're able to bring ourselves into deep relationship, into connection with others. And so, again, because of, you know, our devices, um, our the experience of intimacy is deeply interrupted um, because we've allocated our attention to something that is outside of us. Well, and I, th I think sometimes, you know, thinking about the entrepreneurs that, w that we work with, Another part of the motivation for um, allocating attention to outside themselves is they've also allocated a sense of self-worth outside themselves. And so right. I'm going to pay attention to, quote unquote, how my company is doing as a means of assuaging a voice inside of my head that says I'm worthless that says that I have no meaning and purpose. Um, and I wonder, too, if that, you know, you spoke about pathological altruism, which I love that term. Uh, I'll be honest, I often use the term pathological optimism to describe entrepreneurs, <laughs> right? And I think the pathology lay, in some ways, in the externalization of self-worth and self-purpose and self-meaning. Um, and so by not paying attention, we lose this sort of basic means of being able to um, find an almost endless resource of, of attention and empathy uh, and resiliency. There's that word again. Yeah, when you um, allocate your attention or give your attention to one thing and rest in that one thing, 
the sense of ease, also of rest and of power, you know, because energy is liberated because we're not distracted. We're not trying to, quote, multitask. We're not having to reset our brains all the time with, you know, each thing that we're bringing our attention to at one after another, which is very exhausting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of glucose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To attempt to uh, quote multitask or to keep you know changing screens all the time, so you know as you say we want to see what's happening in the present moment and we also um, uh, you know if you're in a position of responsibility which leaders are and clinicians are really all of us are you want to be able to see accurately um, what is real before you, you know, including the truth of impermanence, but to recognize suffering. And to recognize, I imagine, where is the appropriate application of my energy in this moment? Right. And, you know, almost it's at the point where one doesn't altogether have to ask that question because you're in this, um, you're in a kind of seamless interface. You know, the Buddha called it an appropriate response. An appropriate response arises, or it's a upaya, mm-hmm. that a skillful means that arises, but not, you know, it arises like if, if a mother hears the baby cry, she picks up the baby. So it, it arises almost organically, not out of a force of intellectual will. And Thich Nhat Hanh says it beautifully. He says, you know, the right hand, if the left hand is injured, takes care of the left hand. Right. Just, you know, naturally. And I think that um, I think that's important. So I'm going to ask a sort of fundamental and I think in some ways elemental question, um, because I think there's been a presumption you and I have had, which is that compassion and leadership is a good thing. And, you know, so many of my clients, so many of the folks who listen to this podcast live in a world, um, broadly speaking, called the tech industry, but it's really made up of lots and lots and lots of tiny little villages, right? But, but broadly speaking, and there's this, there's this presumption, this mythology around uh, leadership needing to be forceful and hard and um, in some ways aggressive. And uh, oftentimes, you know, when I or another coach encounters someone who's really, you know, they, they'll, they'll come into one of our offices, either virtually or in reality, and, and no joke, they will sit down and be heard for the first time and break down into tears. And as, as someone once said in one of our, our boot camps, you know, Jerry, this thing that you're asking us to do, which is to be present in our lives, to be authentic in our leadership, to allow the brokenness of who we are to be a source of our leadership, a source of our intention, not something that's in opposition. This thing that you're asking us to do goes against the very playbook that we all carry around in our minds. So... I wonder if we could sort of go at that question, which is, so what's the point of being compassionate? So I think one of the things that we don't realize about compassion is that it is one side of the coin 
that we um, know the other side is wisdom. And what's the point of being a wise leader? Everything. <laughs> you know, um, uh, we're not talking about empathy here when we're speaking about compassion. We're not talking about uh, some kind of uh, mental quality that's fuzzy. Compassion has its ferocious aspects. Compassion has its kind aspects, but mostly compassion is wise. That we are able to stand in a quality of attention that is characterized by fearlessness, where we are grounded in a powerful ethical base, where we have moral sensitivity and we are coming out of a place of, you know, of strong moral character, and where discernment is present, where we, you know, we have um, this capacity of self-knowledge, uh, knowledge of, you know, how, what, what is real and what isn't real. Um, we can downregulate our upregulated emotions when we feel uh, morally threatened. We can do perspective taking. We can distinguish between self and other. Um, we are operating out of a moral imperative. I mean, all of this relates to the, if you will, the inner structure of compassion. And we recognize the truth of impermanence. That's part of the wisdom function of compassion. A leader who doesn't have this perspective is working at a major disadvantage. So I, th I think the point you're making is a really important and powerful point. Many of the points you're making are, are important and powerful. One is, uh, really goes at this, this myth that compassion-based, compassion-infused leadership is somehow less strong, or to use our terminology, less fierce. Um, and the teaching I often give is be fierce, not ferocious. Um, and and, and the, the fierceness comes in the willingness to discern what's actually going on within myself, within the organization, within the world, and to cut through my desire to look away, my desire to distract, um, to be to 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 with with courage in the face of fear to stand. Exactly, you got it. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think we, you know, most most people who are in positions of responsibility have this very, either actualized in their lives or it's very close to the surface. And so the kind of work that you're doing and the kind of work I endeavor to do is to really water those seeds. Well, you know, I want to go back to this, this, this notion of pathological altruism. And in, in my observation, the, the entrepreneurial leadership version of that relates back to a line from Shakespeare, which I love to quote. Shakespeare's Henry V, where Prince Henry, Prince Hal, has assumed the throne of, of England, and, and he's really coming to grips with the burden of leadership. And he says, upon the king, let us our lives, our souls, our debts lay upon the king. Oh, hard condition, we must bear all. Mm. And I love that image because, as he so often did, Shakespeare captures the feeling. Right. 
And yet there's a myth associated with that. And the myth is, it is not, even though it feels like it's upon the king, it lays upon our shoulders. That's the myth. In, In my experience, stepping into fierce compassion with grace allows you to share the collective burden of leadership. I I was just thinking of Robert Greenleaf's uh, work in servant leadership. That's right. You know, and and I I think you've made a tremendously important point here is, you know, pathological altruism, I think, is um, uh, a very uh, fascinating term, which I hadn't thought of exactly in this perspective. But um, there is something that is so uh, ego-based in a pathological altruist. And when you disempower the people around you as a leader, or you don't enter into a process of mutuality uh, between clinician and patient as a clinician, um, uh, and share the the process of healing or leadership or shared responsibility, um, it's really coming out of a sense of your own impoverishment and your distrust. And then it, it becomes pathological altruism. Yeah. And I think that it, um, if we go back to the why compassion, you know, there is a, there's a, there's a natural obvious answer, which is, well, then we create more humane environments. But if we just, humane environment for the other. But if, I think that there's a danger if we just hold on to that notion because then it actually feeds the pathological altruism. And so what ends up happening is the, the leader subtly, neurotically, takes on responsibility for the internal well-regulation of all the people within the organization. Mm-hmm. Thereby undermining their own sense of resiliency and increasing their likelihood to create damage within the organization. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, Jerry, I'm writing a book right now called At the Edge, which is an exploration of uh, a series of states which uh, I recognize, or I call them edge states. And the first one is pathological altruism is altruism, actually, which has its toxic aspect in pathological altruism. And then burnout, you know, (laughs) another edge state. And all these edge states um, uh, are interrelated, and it includes empathic distress, because people who are not well-regulated and over-identify with people who are suffering become overwhelmed, or moral suffering when there have been uh, transgressions of our own sense of justice and goodness, or uh, power imbalances, particularly around bullying, and power imbalances, you know, in uh, organizational context. And the last one, I have a big piece on structural violence, you know, how organizations themselves actually cause harm, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in many different ways. And I think that this is a really, uh, this area um, you know, I what I felt, Jerry, at the time of doing this work was that I wanted to look at what uh, made compassion difficult for people, 
So the edge states are definitely um, obstacles. And then also, um, well, what could actually uh, transform these edge states? And what I discovered, of course, in looking at these edge states, at pathological altruism and so forth, was that clearly compassion is the path out of these states that are uh, fraught. So it, 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 it's so ironic, and there is a, uh, a teaching uh, in Vajrayana Buddhism, which is, you know, turn all, medic- all medicines into poisons, poisons into medicine, right? In a sense, is this relationship here where the other reason, if you will, to lead from a compassionate, authentic, open, present, graceful heart is our own resiliency. It, it, it strengthens our own resiliency. And so we care for the other in, in, in a way where it feeds not only them, but it feeds us. And feeding them feeds us. And feeding us feeds them. And so it becomes this counterbalancing force to a neurotic tendency, which is, uh, um, which we often celebrate as selflessness. Exactly. And actually, it's, I like what Norman Fisher says. He says, enlightenment is fundamentally being unselfish. Mm. So this is another way of saying, you know, what you've said. And um, I think it's very difficult. It's like sort of climbing up a mountain of needles in our society where the self is so valued and where we're in, in Zen, we call it the plague of identities. You know, who we are, what we've done, what we're paid, how busy we are. All of these uh, kind of identities will box us in. And it also, when we are in relationship with others, there's the same experience. We're moving, you know, in that relationship in terms of categories, not in terms of this kind of unfiltered, unmediated relationship with an employee or with a, a, you know, lover or with a patient. So how do we drop down into a place where we're really coming from our basic goodness and meeting the basic goodness of others? I learned so much, Jerry. I worked as a volunteer in the penitentiary of New Mexico with uh, men who were, all of whom were murderers. And, you know, it's the first thing. It's like, whoa, the first filter is a man who is a murderer, Um, you know, or it's like, you know, that's that immediately separates you from the person sitting across you. It's not for me not to see the truth of, oh, that person might not be very safe for me. You know, you've got to be able to see that clearly. But you also have to look more deeply well, into I, the situation. I, I think one of the challenges is if I look more deeply into that situation, then I will encounter the potential murderer within me. Of course. And that is not something I want to acknowledge. You know, I don't want to acknowledge um, my rage or my anger or my uh, uh, capacity to do harm in the world. Right. And, you know, the, the you know, and it was it was as much psychoanalysis as it is Buddhism that helped me understand that coming into encounter with that aspect of me allows me to 
um, defang, if you will, that piece of it and, 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 and allows me to live into the aspiration of leadership that I want to have. Mm. You know, I'm reminded of something I saw right after the Rodney King incident in Los Angeles. I was at um, a big retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, and the Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, and um, he sat up on the stage, this quiet Vietnamese man, and he said, you know, I did not want to come to your country after I saw the video of Rodney King being beaten up by policemen. But then I realized um, I was not only Rodney King, I was those policemen as well. And the room just, you could hear the room gasp. Yeah. It's exactly what you're saying, Jerry. You know, if we, if we not only recognize the, the truth of our own inner aggressors, but that we're not separate from, you know, any political figure, any abuser, anyone who's doing harm, that at a very deep level, we live in a system that includes everyone and everything. And so it's not just our inner difficulties, Mara's, but also, you know, we inter-are with all beings and things. And I think that's one of the functions of compassion is to actually have that discernment, you know, that deep insight into what Thich Nhat Hanh called interbeing. You know, it, it, it feels to me that, you know, to get back to this core question of why compassion and leadership, if we look at our core sense of, of intention and purpose, um, it, you know, the alleviation of suffering. Um, it, uh, the, the teachings don't say the alleviation of only your suffering. The teachings say the alleviation of suffering of all beings, myself included. And that, the, that compassion as a means to the alleviation of suffering leads to environments that are more capable of withstanding and recovering from naturally occurring suffering, which then allows us to then co-create something beautiful in the world. Yeah. Whether it's a new app <laughs> to distract us or a Zen center in the mountains of New Mexico. It allows us to have that experience of co-creation and interbeingness and and community. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think you know finding a livelihood um, which you love and which also serves the world. You know, minimizes harm, maximizes good is pretty great. And um, I, I remember uh, I was friends with uh, one of the executives at Zynga, um, which is, you know, this uh, kind of unusual company that produces games that are, you know, all designed to stimulate, you know, the dopamine loop. <laughs> and, um, you know, that is... Uh, 
and and that is really um interesting and talking with him um he was one of the founders of zynga and talking with him he was very clear at the time that um you know this company was uh, and, and its product was really designed to produce uh, a kind of addiction. He left the company mm-hmm. and started, you know, a whole new life based on a completely different set of values and parameters. But um, I think that, um, well, like many of the people that I've met in the Silicon Valley world, really amazing people, are endeavoring to actually transform the uh, orientation of the of that world toward good, whether mm-hmm. it's in philanthropy or you know the production of apps which um, are about generating positive states of mind. I think about you know Meng, for example, is it Google? And uh, so I you know and I I have enjoyed going to Wisdom 2.0 in the past and and you know just meeting people whose aspirations are. You know, at the age, very young age, all of a sudden they're incredibly wealthy and it didn't give them what they wanted. Right. Well, and I think it's it's that visceral experience of waking up and experiencing the ennui that comes in with, is that all there is? I thought this was going to. And, you know, many people who listen to the podcast know my own story of waking up at around age 38 to the reality of, I achieved a, a certain pinnacle of success and it still hurt. And, uh, you know, as I've, I've shared with others before, I encountered my first gateway drug of when things fall apart by Ani Pema Chodron and cried my way through uh-huh. that book and said, what what have I been carrying in my mind? Mm-hmm. And now, 15 years later, um, my life is completely reoriented mm-hmm. where I think about and have conversations like this, um, maybe in a pathological altruistic pursuit of, of helping alleviate suffering. Now, I happen to do it in a form that is socially acceptable Mm. to a group of people. Oh, coach me so that I can be a better leader, so that I can have a greater return on investment, blah, 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 blah. But as my partner, Khalid, likes to say, what we're really trying to do is just smuggle in consciousness here. Right on. By any means necessary. (laughs) You know, I think your story is just incredible, Jerry, because it's it's a real uh, transformation of consciousness. One thing turns you around on some level. It's reading Ani Pema, mm-hmm. but also um, there's the other thing that turned you around was you read Ani Pema at just the right moment in your life. That's right. You know, that's right. And 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 it, and it was actually my sister Anne who gave me this book and said, you must read this book, right? She gave me that book. She gave me Parker Palmer's When Things uh, Let Your Life Speak and Sharon Salzberg's Faith. And as I've said to Sharon, that was the most moving book of all the books she's ever written. 
And she looked at me and she said, and that was the most difficult book mm. for me to ever write. Yeah, I can imagine. Right. I mean, uh, exactly. Well, Jerry, I'm just so grateful to have this time with you. And also, you know, I hope that um, uh, you, this very simple intervention that uh, I was fortunate to uh, discover or develop or create, however we want to say it, you know, can be useful in, in the lives of many people. Um, I, I, I want to see compassion everywhere. Yeah, well, I, 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 can, I can speak for my own life. Uh, I can guarantee you that understanding your work, Roshi, um, both with the Grace Model, but all of your writings and, um, are, are really applicable. And one of the things I adore is the fierce directness of your understanding of the neurology the, the, the sociology, right? The, the, what we would call the hard sciences, yeah. you know, um, and the relating to that. I think it's incredibly powerful. And I personally encourage many people to really understand Upaya as a, as a place for exploration in this sort of inner landscape. And so thank you for taking the time here. It's, it's really been a gift and a joy. Um, thank you for, whole, for, for for the work that you do in the world. So, thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please consider leaving us a rating on iTunes. Your rating is the single most effective way for new listeners to find and enjoy the show. You can also get all Reboot Podcast episodes by signing up at reboot.io slash signup. There's a link for that in our show notes. I am Dan Putt from Reboot, and you've been listening to the Reboot Podcast. Thanks for joining. How long till my soul gets it right?